0: Welcome to the Asian Digital Supermovers interview series on Clubhouse where we speak to experts, founders and investors about the Asian digital economy and ecosystem every week. Monica, Mushir and I, Pritish, invite guests for a conversation about building, scaling and operating businesses in Asia. Follow our club on Twitter. Our handle is ADSupermovers for providing us any feedback and staying updated on interview series guests and topics. Hi, Sidhu. Hey, good evening.
1: Good evening. Your profile picture is telling me a story, but I'm going to ignore it for now and going to ask you all the questions that I have in mind. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, that's just me being me saying, don't photograph me.
1: I know, I know. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Uh,
2: that was actually forced on me, very seriously. That was Ajay Gore insisting on photographing me when I didn't want to be photographed.
1: Wow, and this has stayed with you for some time? Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's lovely. But this has actually become your identity on Twitter, so we shouldn't lose that, but it was just one of those things, but good uh, start to the room. So Pratish and Sidhu, welcome to the room. Absolutely excited uh, to host this after a very long time, but the most interesting part, and obviously something that I'm very positive about now, is that hopefully the worst is past us, and we are hopefully moving into a better time where we will see all our... Uh, friends and listeners back on clubhouse and trying to get on to uh, with their lives and wonderful to have started the series again with you so before i actually start i'm going to do a little bit of housekeeping and make sure that we have everything set up and then we will quickly get started about everything related to the Asian digital economy, and we cover a variety of topics ranging from product management, fintech, building, growth, venture capital, and... and myself and we talk about and we run a series actually on our based on our own expertise and growth areas. I do it on product management, Pratish does this on growth, and uh, Mushir runs the future of money, DeFi, crypto, etc. So I have my show running today where I've invited Sidhu, who's accepted to be part of the series. This series is being recorded, so you see this red dot at the top of the screen, it actually shows that this is being recorded, but I'm not going to be asking any uncomfortable questions. and uh, more importantly, I see that there are a lot of party hats in the audience. I would love if all of you in the audience would also come and join us on stage when the when the time comes to ask and I open up for audience QA. In the meantime, I'm going to shut off uh, hand-raising uh, option at the bottom of your screens. The reason is I have a uh, set of questions that I want to go uh, over with Sidhu first, and then we'll definitely, uh, in the segments in between, break for some uh, audience Q&A, and uh, make sure that you get your time on stage. But before I do that, also, last thing, if there are any questions, any feedback that you have, please hold on to it. We are going to open up for questions. In the meantime, if you cannot ask your question here, you are more than uh, welcome to visit any of our socials on uh, Twitter, LinkedIn. And, of course, any of our bios as well has our own socials. I'm generally tracking them. So if there's something that you want to tell us or if you're not able to come up to the audience and speak, you can just DM. Now, without further ado... Wanted to introduce to do. Sidhu, I was looking at your profile, I was doing my uh, bit of research, and then I realized that giving you a formal introduction would actually not be doing justice. But I have to tell the audience as to what I found, and then I found this wonderful uh, recap from your story, which does this small little social media card, which they created for me as well. So I'm glad that I found yours, (laughs) then it prevented me from doing some extra hard work. But I'm still sure that this doesn't do you justice, but in order to get started, I'm still going to tell everybody what your story st- says about Sidhu. So Sidhu has worked in the I- Indian IT industry, both services and products, for about 12 years. During this period, he has held two jobs and co-founded four startups. Sidhu has worked as an engineer, product manager, salesperson, recruiter, marketeer, CTO, and CEO. He has failed more times than he can count. His most recent startup was acquired by Gojek, an Indonesian unicorn, in 2015. He serves as the India head of the company. Welcome, Siddhu. Thanks, Monica. Siddhu, why, why do you think this profile doesn't do you justice? Should, can we get started with your own personal journey? And what little I have been able to read about you. You have dabbled so many roles how and what has really kept you on top of everything that you've done and keeping up with not just excellence but doing better at it and actually now being the India head and being able to be the culture ambassador of your own team and leading a very large engineering team with very young talent. I would love to know more about how you got started and of course what has led you to becoming who you are today.
2: Sure. Mostly it was just a set of coincidences i don't think any such thing happens from good planning right if you just look at that entire list you can see that it's not really planned but my origin story is that i i was very lucky that my school's alumni association for whatever reason decided that the school should have a computer lab and it wasn't even like it was a fancy school right like fancy school i understand but in i was fortunate that my school got a computer lab when i was very little i started studying computer science in 3rd standard And I was equally lucky that the school outsourced the lab to this gentleman by the name of Joy Joseph, who probably was the least among the least patient teachers I've ever met. But the flip side of that is in all of these years of being formally taught computer science that I went through after that, was the only person who knew how to code. So we had this really cranky, but actually a good programmer who taught us and uh, who I studied under one way or the other for the next seven or eight years. So that was um, the genesis of all of it. By the time I was in high school, I was very clear that uh, whatever I did, it is going to involve computers and probably would involve business, but definitely would involve computers. After after college, I got into ThoughtWorks, a hands-on coding job, something that I was really aspiring to. I also did my first startup almost immediately after starting work when I was 21, where my school programming buddy started this. It was probably the best described as Walnut before uh, before there were apps. We we're talking about 2005, 2006. So it was uh, Walnut, but managed on top expense X- 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 tracking on top of SMS. That didn't work out. We pivoted within about uh, a year. The next thing we did, we had 6,000 DAUs and 60,000 MAUs in a few weeks, pre-internet. And we discovered uh, Twitter while looking for competition. But we were kids. We didn't know what we were sitting on top of. We totally botched that. A couple of years of doing that, we shut it down. It was costing an arm and a leg because, again, pre-internet, we were paying for SMS. Most of our salaries... So 2008, we shut that down. I took a break for a couple of years for personal reasons. There was an illness in the family. 2010 started again. This time, after the bad experience, the previous time around, we had a really tough time raising money. So this time, we said, "I'm going to go this myself." So started doing consulting on the side. Fast forward two to two two and a half years. We had blown all of our consulting profits very naively, trying to build a product which we hadn't studied the financial viability of. So we had built Ruby Monk, enormously popular, extremely successful, covered on uh, Lifehack on Hacker News homepage for 48 hours, Hacker News top three for eight hours, but financially no use. So eventually shut that down as well and went into... The reasoning was that we messed up a product because we were doing consulting on the site. Of course, in hindsight, it turns out that we messed out the product because we didn't have product thinking. But you know how it is in the moment, right? So we shut down the consulting business completely and went into product full-time, which uh, lasted a year. We had a year's worth of money. We were working on a matrimony product, which again, we didn't hit PMF on after a year. So then stop that. That's actually something I'm, I want to call out because... When I talk to entrepreneurs these days, this is one of the first questions I ask them, especially the early stage ones who are pre-PMF, maybe seed funded or even pre-seed. And I say, what is your stop condition? When will you stop? How do you know you're going to pull the plug on this and move on? And most of them don't have an answer. And that's usually normal. And I didn't have an answer too for the first two or three times when I started up. But by the time we got around to this product, we were wise enough to know that there is a budget and there is a time and we have to adhere to that so the day we ran out of that time we pulled the plug and pivoted to consulting back because we said okay now enough adventure let's make some money and built out a fairly nuanced business plan to aim to build a very sort of high-end super premium high quality consulting company and uh, a year and a half later uh, you know we had a business plan which predicted this as a low probability branch but it actually happened which is one of our clients became a hyper-growth, like proper hyper-growth rocket ship that was Gojek and we were acquired. That was the entrepreneurial story. Once I got into Gojek, it was a pretty straightforward thing in in how we separated our responsibilities. I became inward facing in terms of focusing on India and making sure that the delivery machine has all the support and scaling it needs to grow. Whereas my co-founders focused on uh, outward on actually getting the delivery done. And in the process, I ended up doing this random grab, grab bag of roles, right? So if you look at it from a career slash role perspective, that pattern will make no sense. Because while my official title at the time was uh, MD India, and now it's SVP Eng. At the time, my work involved covering building a data engineering team building a recruiting team, building a marketing team, getting marketing campaigns out. It was just this random grab bag of stuff. And uh, the simple rule was run toward the screaming, is the humorous way I would put it. You just figure out what is the worst problem that nobody wants to touch right now. And then you go pick that up, right? If that's recruiting, if it's marketing. So that, that, that grab bag of roles and responsibilities will make a lot more sense if you look at it through the lens of saying, hey, what was on fire, pick that up. Yeah, that's my story in a nutshell. Right now, I'm SVP Engine Gojek. I work on internal products, looking to build the things to help the company scale up that we cannot buy off the shelf. So, that's my story in a nutshell.
1: So it's an absolutely riveting and exciting journey that you've just shared and I myself if I were to just double click on at least a couple of aspects that you shared I think we would need definitely more than an hour but I'm going to pick up two of these simply because uh, these are of area uh, these are an area of interest based on what I'm hearing from people who are trying to build their careers both in product management and trying to also make the shift from engineering. First of all uh, about product consulting I hear a lot about product consulting but I've never really seen a very successful product. A consulting business or even a successful product consulting, consultant given the kind of vagaries associated with the product manager profile that we generally have and also the cross-functional collaboration and nature of our uh, work. How did you actually get past this hoop when you were working with enterprises or with companies and was it one of those being with the company and being like their outsourced arm or was this really about going from project to project? I wanted to double click on this one with you please.
2: I don't think there was a lot of thought when we first started out. When we first started out, we were heavily uh, oriented along the technical axis. So we first started out saying we'll focus on Ruby and Ruby on Rails problems and projects. This is, I'm talking, 2010. And uh, that was our line of attack. But over time, what became clear, and you'll notice this pattern even today in the boutiques in the country, which are highly successful, is that while there is nobody with the formal title or role of product manager all of the founders uh, of these boutiques irrespective of whether they're designers or engineers or whatever are all uh, extremely competent product managers by you know de facto competent product managers otherwise their firm wouldn't be successful and uh, the second interesting thing and i don't quite know why this is you will not see product managers in our part of the world step out into contracting even though it's far more lucrative I, 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 one would think intuitively that given the nature of product management as a role, it's a risky job. It's uh, often a thankless job because you take on all of the risk, whereas your rewards are of of a performance review type, right? You take on business risk, but you get performance review rewards, which is not really very fair. You would think you would, that that most product managers would branch out into consulting the moment they had their feet under them, but that isn't the case. So yeah. I would. After that, slowly we realize that the focus over, should not be on the technology, but it should be on the problem and the nature of the problem. And second is the focus needs to be on the stage of the business that we need to be targeting customers for whom our input is mission. No, what's the word? What's the phrase? I a phrase to use? Like basically, without us, they run the risk of complete failure. Like the business is growing so fast, there are so many things happening that without this input, their business is going to fail. That's the segment we should target. And uh, uh, that took three or four iterations for us to develop clarity on that. But by 2014, we were very clear about this. And uh, we had also initiated the process of merging with Ajay's firm, Code Ignition, which is because my firm and Ajay's firm had been collaborating quite closely for quite some time. And we had very complementary focus areas. Code ignition was primarily focused on the infra and DevOps side. And we were primarily focused on the web and backend side. So by 2014, we combined the firm. We had all of these skill sets across backend to infra to, to web. And uh, we'd also started uh, becoming selective about our clientele and zeroing in on growth stage startups as our primary clientele. And uh, I think that was what really worked out for us. And you'll notice that there are a few boutiques in the country that are doing the same thing and it'll work out for them as well. But the ones that are looking at this from the perspective of uh, being uh, cost effective for the customer, they always struggle because there is a systematic problem there, which is if you want to really do high quality, high impact work, which is satisfying to you as the founder personally, if you're working yourself, you need good people, you need good work and you need good money. And the moment you say, I'm going on to a budget, you drop the good money. If you drop the good money, then your good people will leave because someone is going to come and offer them a ton more money than you pay. If your good people leave, then you can't do good work, then you lo- lose your good customers. And then you go into this debt spiral, right? Like you get worse and worse customers, worse and worse projects at lower and lower rates. Now that debt spiral is where most of the country's consulting companies get sucked into. And uh, that is what in the vast majority.
1: That is a very interesting take do and I hope that boutique consulting actually becomes a little bit more mainstream and you are absolutely right about the monetary benefits that a product consultant may have over a product manager generally and at least in um, the western countries this is definitely becoming very mainstream. But I also wanted to ask you since your startup was taken over obviously merged in Gojek but before that looking at the financial viability of the businesses that you were in not finding the right fit and not finding that kind of success. When I am sure there would have been areas of concern at that point in time, but what really not only kept you going, but how did you d- really decide to you know, shut down a product and sunset it and say this is not really working out, because that is the most difficult decision for a product person in or any startup founder in general, which is when do you say enough and this is not going to work.
2: I don't think think there is any generalizable advice on that. Uh, Again, this is something that comes up in conversations frequently when I'm advising founders. And all I have to say on the topic is you're trying to draw a line between sunk cost and sunk cost fallacy, right? You're trying to say, hey, I have sunk cost. I need to double down on my investment. Or you're saying, hey, I I have sunk cost and it's too much and I'm just going to have more useless sunk cost after this. So I'm in sunk cost fallacy. I need to kill this and move on. And where you draw the line is a very personal choice. But the first basis of drawing that line, which is ignored, is just resourcing. How much money do you have and how much time can you afford to give to it? And because it is intuitively such a painful question, most first-time entrepreneurs will always shy away from answering it. And which is why you will see most first-time entrepreneurs have a tendency to just drag on a zombie business. We used to call this zombie, right? Well, the moment we realize that the business is a zombie, we need to kill it. And a zombie business is one which has enough life in it that it looks alive, but actually isn't, right? And you need to have a very clearly defined framework, simple, clearly defined framework before you commit to a particular line of execution or a particular idea as to when are you going to pull the plug and what are the thresholds, which if not met will cause you to pull the plug. It could be revenue, it could be traction, it could be what have you, it could be cash in the bank, or it could just be time without any of those particular numbers being hit. But it's very important to have the stop decision clarified in your mind before you start. It's one of the most important questions to answer as part of your initial due diligence on a product idea.
1: Absolutely. And so do you, uh, your piece of advice to product managers who are normally dry, uh, dealing with a lot of requirements and obviously there are with such an evolving market landscape, either market is driving us and we are reacting or we feel that we are trying to keep up or trying to keep ahead. Now, in times like this, when the right PMF is also very difficult to find because you don't have even time to test out your hypothesis, what really is the best way that you have found in your experience that has worked for you or that you would recommend now?
2: I'm afraid this one has no good answer. I've seen so many... At the end of the day, PMF is a function of luck more than anything else. Really, it is. The only thing that you can do is to try to build a machine that can explore a a solution space as cost-effectively as possible, which means that, let's say you have a budget of whatever, 50k, 100k, 500k, whatever, X, budget of X. How many branches of the solution space in front of you can you explore? And what is a way for you to prune that solution space as cheaply as possible and zero in on the parts of it where there is PMF? Uh, And everyone has a different methodology for this. I honestly cannot easily answer that because a lot of it, especially when you're low on budget, when you're really tight on budget, a lot of it boils down to the personal skill set of a founder because the founder can obviously de-risk those parts of the solution space where they have personal experience. So if you come from a sales background, uh, you can probably de-risk the sales path, but your engineering part is going to be highly risky. Or if you come from an eng background, which is like the mistakes that we made, your technology will be spot on, but you wouldn't have uh, any de-risking de- de- on your GTM or your, your overall sales and marketing uh, funnels. So there is no good answer to this, to be honest. Like the only thing that really matters here is luck. And you really need to be spending a lot of time and effort figuring out how to get lucky
1: that has no clear answers absolutely but before we dive into the next set of questions i'll do a quick room reset thank you everyone who's joining us we are talking to Situ about building products and of course talking to him about the various assets of building right from product management to engineering to to hyper growth which we'll be coming to now, shortly i've turned hand raising off for just a bit i'm going to turn it off uh, turn it on again in the next 5 to 7 minutes i uh, just want to get ahead with my set of questions before I do a little bit of a break where we open up for audience Q&A and bring you guys up. In the meantime, uh, please take the time to uh, follow people that you're seeing right now with the party hats on. There are a lot of new people who've joined Clubhouse. Please do also give Asian Digital Supermovers as well as of course all the people on stage a quick follow so that you get notifications when they go online. Uh, but to do jumping right into Gojek, which is obviously the main, <laughs> and obviously it's made a lot of news this week, which is excellent. But uh, since you joined, your company got acquired, You actually joined from a smaller setup to a very large setup and now it has only grown bigger and will continue to grow even bigger and you've also in terms of your role it's evolved from being the md into now heading engineering etc but in terms of your own abilities and being able to deal with so many young people at the same time building a product building a culture and building teams how and what exactly worked for you and what were some of the take uh, forward for, what were some of the learnings from your previous experience that has come to fruition on the other hand, I would also like to learn what were some of your feelings working in a larger company, which we should al- always be aware of. So that because now setups are becoming bigger and bigger, with even the startups being really large.
2: Yep. I think I'll take the second one first. When we joined Gojek, it wasn't that large. I think the total eng team at the time was was probably 10, or um, less than 10 people and probably another 10 maybe outsourced. So from the product side, it was really small. There was a substantial call center and ops, of course. But overall, the company wasn't that big and I've seen it grow over time. I think the single biggest learning over there has been, I built up a significantly uh, greater respect for management as a skill set. And I slowly shed a lot of my engineering origin biases against words like leadership, alignment, stuff like that. Because coming in, Gojek is the largest company i work worked for in terms of headcount today, though it wasn't that big when I joined. And uh, when I did work in ThoughtWorks, when it was a couple of thousand people, I was very junior. So I had no exposure to these things. So coming into Gojek, I had a very engineering, my origin story was engineering. I had a lot of those biases, which is you need leaders if you have followers and who needs followers. We need people who are going to take ownership and make decisions. We don't need sheep was one of the the mental models I had, which was so thoroughly wrong. The second thing was that management is for losers. Uh, If you have really smart people in the room, they self-organize. And that's an engineering origin origin story uh, narrative, which I think has been debunked for me the hard way over and over again. And I think the Gojek, it's happened to me before, and now Gojek is where it really drove that lesson home, that you need to really stop this nonsense about putting really smart people together and magic will happen. It doesn't, right? Really smart people still need a lot of support and structure to, to be productive and to have impact. And third is it also cemented my perspective that the idea of a role is something that most people get locked into. Some One of my very good friends over time, we were having lunch together in the Jakarta office on one of one of my trips there. And he was like, yeah, I'm reading this book and something really resonated with me, which is that you are not your role. And I was like, "Ha!" Huh. because this is something that I never saw earlier. I was completely blind to the fact that a lot of people take their role in that way. Whereas for me, a role, uh, quote unquote, role has always been a matter of convenience. If it lets me do what I want to do, yeah, sure, I'm that role. So there are times where I was simultaneously like six roles. And it didn't matter because it got what I needed done. right? People are like, oh, this guy's playing, this guy's in this role, so it makes sense that he's doing this. So, in that sense, for me, a role is more a marketing gimmick than anything real. And that leads me to my last point, right? Part of the world. Now, I've never worked in a large Western tech company, so I can't comment there. But because of my consulting as well as Gojek experiences, I've seen a lot of companies in Our food tech was doing more deliveries than all food tech in India combined X2. Our transportation was probably comparable to any one of the large uh, transportation players neck-to-neck or slightly more. And payments was running like one-third of uh, India peak or any one India, India player, major player. And um, if we took our Indian equivalents, one company for each of these, the total product headcount for across all of them combined would exceed five or 6,000 people. And at that time, we were running with 300 people. And of those 300, maybe 200 were on those products. The 100 were on other products. So we were basically delivering larger volumes with 200 people than our peers in India were with 6,000. And that's how it works. That would be my final point here, which is that If you scale beyond a certain point, you have to scale your headcount. There's no doubt about that. But most people are trying to scale their business by scaling their headcount. And that's craziness. It just does not work that way.
1: Siddhu, that's an absolutely excellent point and in fact, I'm going to take the next segment and start it off with something which is about hiring. But before I do that, I've opened up hand raising uh, for everyone who is in the audience. All you need to do is click on the hand. There is this hand icon at the bottom of your screens on the right hand side. Please click on that and wait for your turn to come up. And once you do come up, it would be lovely to hear from you in terms of a single line about what you what you do and where you are speaking from and where you are joining us from today, as well as of course your question. Would love it as well if you keep your question concise. I will already see a few hands raised. So I am going to pull them up in the PTR order. And after they are pulled up to stage, I will request them to speak. Give me a second. So Hi, Praval. Welcome to the stage.
2: Hi, Monica.
3: Hi. Keeping this in context uh, of the conversation and for the benefit of the larger group here, a quick question uh, has two parts. Since you mentioned you were responsible for marketing and hiring at Gojek, I have two little questions. One is, what was your approach while building the marketing team in India, and what was the biggest learning? there so approach and learning and an extended question to that is based on your experience of hiring and building a team which goes beyond marketing of course what's your advice to a lot of these pre-seed startup founders on finding and retailing talent especially when salaries are at an all-time high in this market so call it two questions call it two and a half questions
2: but those are the questions for you Got it. Monica, how do you want to do this? We go one person at a time. Is that okay? Yes, please. Okay. So, Pravel, please uh, interrupt me if I'm uh, misunderstanding any of this. The the first question I should nuance that, nuance the context, right? Marketing for us became important. This was in the context of building out the, uh, the India capabilities for Gojek. And the constraint that we had was we needed marketing because we didn't have a product in the market. Now, what ends up happening for most tech companies is that The product is the number one driver for hiring of product talent, whether it's engineers or designers or whoever. You have the easiest time of it when you have a consumer product which end users are using and some of those end users are themselves developers or PMs or whatever and they love the product, so they want to come and work, right? This is the easiest end of the spectrum. Then the next, you know, more difficult one will be not a B2C, but some kind of a B2B and the brand, that the brand is reasonably well-known. And then beyond beyond that, it gets harder and harder as you become less and less well-known. And part of this is because India is a very conservative market. From a hiring standpoint, uh, for example, most people's hiring decisions are heavily driven by their parents. So if your company's brand is not well-recognized by the parents of the people who want to join you, then your conversion rates drop. So marketing became very important for us because we were an Indonesian company we had no intention of coming to India anytime in the uh, foreseeable future, and uh, yet we needed to go up against these extremely strong, heavy hitting uh, B2C and B2B brands like Amazon, Intuit, Flipkart, Ola, etc., etc., etc. From a hiring standpoint, and attract talent. And we were in a situation, especially at that time, where people are like, Indonesia, what's Indonesia? Isn't it like? And uh, there would be misconception X or misconception Y that would follow. And of course, Gojek was a complete, like, nobody had heard the name. So marketing became very important from that perspective. And uh, this is so, what I'm trying to clarify also, this is not general product marketing, right? It's very focused marketing for talent. And uh, the thought process there was two or three things. One is high quality talent primarily wants to work with high quality talent. And this is true for product in a manner that is less true for other verticals where you have homogenous teams, like operations or wherever, where you can potentially solve the problem with a small army, quote unquote, right? In, in product execution, you do need every different kind of specialist to be highly capable or you have enormous wastage and loss. And highly capable practitioners can recognize highly capable practitioners, So that was the first thing that we focused on, which was to try to make sure that everyone in the market started to build a picture of the capabilities of the team currently in Gojek. Because the single biggest attraction factor outside of compensation would be, hey, am I working with people who know what their job is or am I going to work work with idiots who are going to set fire to everything? And then I'll be firefighting for the next whatever one or two years. The second part was discovery, which was to just get a content pipeline out. And uh, third was to build uh, and this I'm sort of edging over into the second question you had. The third was from an operational problem, which was to build the operational machine that allowed us to process those incoming leads because we had massive volumes of leads uh, coming in and uh, our conversion rates were like one in thousand. So it was there were times when because we screwed up or I screwed up on the operations, There were times when engineering was spending 80% of their time doing interviews because we had misjudged the conversion rates on one step or another. So I think it was the combination of these three things, which is creating the, what a friend of mine calls nerd cool gravity, right? If you have the right kind of nerds, they have a certain gravity, which attracts other right kind of nerds in. So to get that out there, second was to back that with really solid, authentic technical content. And third was to get a very firm grip on operations, assuming that there is an atrocious conversion ratio and a very high fraud rate. So you've got to run an operation system that from an interview standpoint, isn't going to completely overwhelm your in-house team, but also generates quality hires. And from a team building perspective, I was actually very fortunate in that our marketing efforts attracted the right kind of people. In fact, Aditya was one of the people who came to us. Aditya is one of my colleagues on the marketing team and currently heads marketing for India. And that slowly led us into this line of reasoning where we are like, look, we're trying to get stories out there. Who are the best people at getting stories out? It's journals. So uh, we started looking into that angle and we made some investments into bringing in some journalistic capabilities into the marketing team. And then slowly built relationships from with the wider organization. And uh, that's how we started getting content out. So we would have an editorial panel that would solicit content from across the company and then go through an editorial process, which, by the way, was also quite painful. It took quite a while for people to accept engineers, PMs who were writing content, that the editorial process was that rigorous. uh, They struggled with that. And eventually, we got to a place where we had a regular pipeline of content. We had a decent brand and our operations wasn't a total shit show. And that's how that worked out for us. I'm not sure if I covered everything, Praval, so please. Thank you so much. It
3: was pretty comprehensive. And I know marketing in India was around talent and not, you don't have anything to offer as a product here that I was aware of. But you answered the question. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you,
1: Pravel. Welcome, Abhishek.
3: Hi, Monica. How are you? Abhishek here.
1: Very well. Please tell us where you're uh, call, where you're joining us from and what is your sure. question?
3: Sure. So uh, my question is Situ. Situ, I'm calling from Bombay. Actually, this is my first time speaking on a Clubhouse group. So my first Ooh, question welcome. is, uh, thanks so much. I've been a good admirer of Gojek. Wanted to ask a question. Have you guys ever explored or considered lending as one of your offerings? If yes or if no, i uh, would love to hear the reasons around that. Second is more from a personal standpoint, I'm more of a product and partnerships person. Though my current role is more in the sales and sales, pre-sales and BD stuff. So any tips, any guidance for us product guys to further be more inclined and further be more well-versed into the art of selling? I would love to hear your views and thoughts on this.
2: Thanks. Cool. Yeah, sure. I think the, the first one is yes. We've been, we, we do have lending products. We have pay later. There's a whole bunch of things that you can, you can buy on credit on the globe as a, through Gopay's lending feature. Unfortunately, I'm not the domain expert on it. I know it's there. I know it works. I know okay. we've had it for a few years, but beyond that, I probably can't give you much more in terms of detail. To your second question, the way I would put it is, One of the most useful mental models I found was for this particular problem was from uh, Dalio's principles, which is you can either do something or you can be somebody, but it's probably going to be difficult if you try to do both. Correct. Uh, What I found is uh, most people when trying to uh, figure stuff out for themselves in terms of their objectives, myself included, it seems to be a cognitive bias. We tend to anchor on the activities that we want to do And we tend to anchor on role models whom we admire, whom we want to emulate. And this doesn't even need to be like someone big like Bill Gates or whatever, right? Some rich and famous person. It could even be somebody that we've seen at work at some point in our careers. And it's just sitting in the back of my mind that, oh, yeah, that, that person was so cool. And I want to be like that person. Maybe it'll take a few years, but I want to get there. And what this means is you start thinking in terms of, one, what does your day look like? What work do you want to do? I want to call people. Oh, I really enjoy talking to people. Or I really enjoy doing analysis of data. Or I really enjoy coding. And uh, the second thing is it becomes a kind of, even beyond the activities, it just says that to be like this person whom I admire, right? Now, uh, the the problem with these things tends to be that it's not very actionable. The reality is that it isn't. So what I found much more useful, and I want to flag this to everyone in the room, right? A lot of these things... Uh, you, everyone needs an external advisor to help with. You, you just need people you trust whom you can talk to because it's very hard to see it for yourself. In fact, what I'm saying right now was repeated back to me by an advisor just a few days ago, which is that I will start trying to uh, be somebody and not trying to do something. So my advice is always orient yourself on trying to do something. If your objective requires you to, do, to develop a certain skill set, then you will. But if you're looking at the certain activities or uh, a certain person, you will never develop new skill sets easily. Whereas if you're saying that my objective is to make X happen, I'm going to change reality. Today, X does not happen. When I'm done, X will happen. You will develop all the necessary skill sets. In a nutshell, my perspective there is don't try to be somebody as an objective. Don't pick a role, and this is controversial advice, don't pick a role as an objective. Pick an outcome as an objective and then go after it.
3: Thanks. uh, Thanks.
1: That is indeed wonderful advice, Sidhu. Thank you, Praval and Abhishek for your questions. I'm going to dive into the next part of the show, but before that, a quick room reset. We are talking to Sidhu, who leads engineering and is the SVP of engineering at Gojek. We are talking about various aspects, and we've covered hiring. We've covered his entire his journey into Gojek, and of course, every his entrepreneurial adventures before that as well. And right now, we've hit upon an important topic, which is hiring. But before we go ahead, I'm turning. On of hand raising for another couple of minutes before uh, so that we finish our next set of questions and then i will open it right back for all of you in the audience to come and speak to us but before that please do consider giving asian digital supers a quick follow as well as everyone on the stage we have a lot of shows coming up but tomorrow we are actually talking about a very trending topic where we're doing a 101 on crypto and obviously the bitcoin uh, revolution that is happening so if you are new to the area or if you just wanted to understand the fundamentals behind it not the rally not any financial advice to join us at 10 a.m or 9 30 a.m it's i'll have to check but it's probably on one of my profiles as well as on the club page so please do consider joining and we'll have asia tech uh, newsroom coming up on wednesday at 7:30 p.m so uh, that's going to cover all the headlines that have made uh, news in the asian digital economy so to please do consider joining us so Sidhu this brings me to uh, the next part of my question which actually Praval has thankfully asked because it helps me raise and highlight one important aspect which is about hiring now when we're talking about hiring and building really high performing teams do what is your strategy hire for attitude and then train for skill or are you always looking for somebody who fits uh, all the check boxes in terms of the hiring that you are looking for what would be your advice
2: Unfortunately, in tech today, the luxury of choice in that manner is just not there, right? Because there is so little talent in, 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 in comparison to the demand. And that the situation has been around for so long that there has been a major price war. And now all really good talent is extremely expensive. So honestly, the bitter truth is the number one consideration in hiring today for anybody with very rare exceptions is budget. The sec- the, having said that, having caveated that, I think that for me, my hiring on the product side is always first and foremost shaped by the ratios of skill sets in the company uh, or in the team or the org that skill that's needed because at the end of the day, product is a craft, it is how it is today right product management is a craft engineering is a craft design falls into that bucket pretty much almost every you know major function you're going to find falls into that bucket right while there may be technical skills backing it whether it's computer science or data science or whatever the actual going to production piece of building products is a craft there is no one size fits all there are no best practices no two companies do it the same way. No two companies of different scales do it the same way. Stacks are different. Everything is different. So what this means is that the organizations that I'm trying to build are heavily focused on mentoring first and foremost. And the most important thing for mentoring is the right teacher to student ratios. If, if you don't get the teacher to student ratios, your organization cannot scale up. And even aside from the failing to scale up, The quality of the product shipped by your organization will be subpar if your student-to-teacher ratios are broken. So for me, first and foremost, after budget, is I don't care about anything else. I'm looking to see what is the ratio of experienced to inexperienced people. And when I'm interviewing and hiring, I'm heavily focused on people who bring with them uh, a prior history of study. Another open secret in the industry is that, especially for ENG, All of the best ones are self-taught. And if you design your entire sourcing and interview process to look for self-learning ability, it's hard to go wrong.
1: That is absolutely critical. And I think self-learning is where I think most of us are faltering. And uh, that is why upskilling has become such a huge pain area for most leaders. But Sidhu, I wanted to just uh, double click on one uh, other question because it's come up a couple of times, which is about engineering and product management almost anonymously mentioned. But that might be, have to do with the fact that you've dawned on multiple roles uh, in your career. What would be your take on engineers turning to product managers and uh, and really understanding the craft for what it is, but having to leave their engineering background behind? And is that even possible?
2: Absolutely. Look, again, we're going to wander out into controversial territories. I'm going to give my usual YMMV, caveat-tempter statements here, right? You're, if you follow what I'm saying and get burned, that's on you. <laughs> because it is uh, it is not common advice. I'm going to quote one of my friends who's actually in the room today, Shobit. When he says that in the tech industry... there is no such thing as a PM is actually a general manager. It's what the tech industry calls a GM. It's important to ask ourselves the question, we, we use all of these labels, we use these labels, engineer, we use these labels, PM, as though they mean something, right? There is an inherent assumption. And to be fair, it is true to some extent for engineers, right? The label can actually be generalized. But for product managers, what I've found is product management is what I like to call a negative space role. What that means is, a product manager fills the gaps between many different stakeholders to ensure that those stakeholders collaborate in the right way to ship the product, right? Now, in different companies, that negative space that sits between all of the different coordinating entities is of a different shape. Very obviously, it's different from B2C to B2B. But what people don't, and you will see this, right? People are like, oh, this is a B2B PM or that's a B2C PM or that's a technical PM, whatever, But uh, what people ignore is that gap actually persists to a considerable degree even within any given segment. So you go from company A to company B, you have a highly centralized decision-making in company A versus highly decentralized in company B. The PM job is completely different in those two. What I'm trying to drive at is there is actually no standard for product management. A product manager is somebody who needs to be extremely flexible because when they're working in company A, their day, Monday to Friday, look X. When they go to company B, their Monday to Friday can be completely different. The focus areas that they tap into, the skills that they need can be completely different. And this is why I opened by saying PM is a thankless role, right? This is one of the reasons why. Because the PM is the the heavy lifter, the general purpose heavy lifter. And that's how it is. Now, can an engineer become a PM? If an engineer can become a CEO, and we know that a disproportionate number of tech company CEOs are from engineering backgrounds, then of course an engineer can become a PM. Anybody can become a PM. I think the real secret over here is there is no such thing as a junior PM, right? And this is what I like to flag because, again, from a hiring and org building perspective, most people are like, yeah, I can't afford a senior, so let's hire a junior. And uh, what I want to call out is there's no such thing as a junior PM. Associate PM, all these roles... Those people, There is only one way to be a PM and it is to span at least four to five areas of specialization and know how to coordinate across all of those to get something done. If you can't span more than four or five, you aren't a PM yet. And uh, the reason I'm calling this out is all PM's origin stories begin, the most common ones are engineering, project management, design. And then less commonly sales or BD and operations. These are the typical origin stories of PMs. And you start from this and then you slowly diversify out. You learn the others. Sorry, I missed analytics also. Analytics is another origin story. So you say you start as a, an, an analytics person. Then you slowly have to start picking up how do engineers work? Or how does marketing work? Or how do I coordinate a marketing campaign with a, a feature release? Oh, that happened. Okay, now how do sales teams work? How are sales teams incentives set? Why is this particular feature in my B2B product not working? Are my sales teams not incentivized to sell it well? Uh, oh, this del- release is getting uh, delayed. Why is it getting delayed? What is the operational flow by which engineers are shipping the product? Like if you cannot master all of these skills and you cannot be a product manager and it's humanly impossible to master all of them in four or five years especially if you're like really young and in the industry. So for me, like the only actual PMs in the market are the ones who've been around for 8, 10, 12 years because anything less is humanly impossible. The only exception to this I would call out, uh, and this was a very successful hiring strategy for us in the early days, though I don't advise it for large mature companies, is to uh, hire your entire PM pool from uh, ex-CEOs. So founders who've started up and then shut down or moved on or exited or whatever, But ex-CEOs of startups make fantastic PMs. But as I flagged, not for large companies. Uh, They're not where most of the work is administration.
1: Situ, this is the most controversial thing I've heard in a while. And I've heard a lot of controversial things.
2: Happy happy to do it. I I, (laughs) I love being controversial about these things.
1: I would love to I'm not going to counter you on this but I'm going to say that I think there are definitely some aspects that I completely 100% agree with you on and there are certain aspects that I'm currently fighting myself Of course it wouldn't
2: be controversial otherwise <laughs> right? like there is
1: Absolutely.
2: no such thing as a controversial statement that everyone agrees
1: with <laughs> I totally agree but this was it was nice to hear this so transparently as you did because it really does beg the question which is what do product managers do and I don't think people understand the nuances of the job the way you described it is probably something which gives people a preview of what that is likely to be but understanding four or five domains or being able to not be experts at it but be able to drive work by simply your influence and with absolutely no authority is not an easy person's job
2: not at all and and when your team does well you don't get you know unfair upside and but does badly you do get unfair downside like as a role it's extremely uneven and challenging it's like all of the disadvantages of starting up and none of the advantages.
1: Absolutely. And I have no doubt about it. But I think we should definitely keep these negative aspects or slightly downsides of the role away from our young audience who wants to get into product management. It is one of the hottest careers ever. Oh, no, I mean,
2: that's exactly my point, right? Uh, Monica, the reason I'm interrupting there is the best PMs I've found are the ones who are attracted by this problem statement. I'm like, hey, look, it's hmm. a thankless job. It's asymmetric. The only thing probably more asymmetric than this, if you look at it holistically, is starting up. And the people who are attracted by that asymmetry are the people who should go in. When I meet somebody bright-eyed, coming out of an ISB or an IM or wherever, saying Mm. I will be a product manager because it's a good career choice. I I smile on the side and don't say anything. But when I meet somebody who's, oh, I'm in this for the game, and you will meet these people. For those people, I'm like, yes, PM is exactly right for you. If you're a player of games... This role is the most fun role, but you really need to understand its dynamics. So it is tough, it's thankless, but it is so much fun.
1: That I completely agree with you. And it would be lovely to hear you talk about product management in one of your podcasts that you do so by the way just a small plug uh, for Sidhu as well if you haven't heard some of the podcasts I did while doing the research for this particular uh, series that we are doing here and obviously in speaking to Sidhu today you absolutely must it is about being truthful and honest about what really goes on behind the scenes and one aspect that I will absolutely not do justice to to everybody who's hearing uh, me right now is about international Siddhu, you've managed engineering product, you know how it works, you've done product management yourself, you yourself have been a CEO. You p- explain this to me, how does internationalization work? What goes on in your mind when you're trying to build for so many different countries, and you know that you're trying to do this because you still are, you're still going to have a lot of c- customers very quickly, at the same time you're dealing with a lot of vagaries associated with scaling your own startup and dealing with absolute mad hyper growth how do you deal with that complex situation without actually compromising on product principles tell us well, the secret
2: i'll be very frank with you at the time when i was personally involved in product execution we were very clear that we were indo focused and we were not going to expand when the decision was taken to to do multi country i had moved out of product execution and into more administrative roles on the people in ops side so i was a spectator to that So I want to caveat this this whole uh, conversation by saying that this is not a first-hand thing. This is my second-hand perspective from talking to all of my friends who were directly involved in in that internationalization. But I think in a nutshell, at a high level, the question is one of architecture. And I think this is something people don't talk about much, which is, look, we've got a product in, in one market which is successful. Now I want to take it to other markets. There are two ways I can do this. I can either build a new product for each market. When I say new, mostly new, I may take a few pieces over, but I have no intention of converging them. What I mean is when I fork this this stream of execution into two streams, say one for country A and one for country B, I have zero intention in the future of having those two streams converge. That's option A. Option B is I have one central source of truth, which is the product which everyone uses, And then I have very minor customizations possible for individual markets. And wherever those customizations are globally relevant, I am going to feed them back in, which means that I do expect the branches to converge back. Now, the trade-off between the two approaches is the first approach gives individual market teams enormous flexibility to attack their markets and for local behavioral patterns. If you all remember how long it took Uber to get cash payments out in India, you would understand what I mean, because Uber falls into the second bucket, right? They have picked this approach where the core product is going to be exactly the same and with very limited customization abilities across markets. The disadvantage with the first approach is very quickly, you're basically running a parallel team for each market. And then you run into issues like, hey, how do you ensure that you have the same level of talent, the same processes, the same standards across multiple markets, etc., etc., SaaS companies, B2B SaaS companies that have done customizations for customers and now you have 14, 15 different customizations and your team is not able to keep up with it. Those folks would know the pain I'm talking about with the first model. The second model uh, allows you to amortize your team much better. You have a a, a core team that manages most of the product and then you have country-specific, very small teams that do customizations. But there, your ability to attack the market as it needs to be attacked is heavily constrained. And your local teams are always going to feel like second-class citizens because they are just not allowed to do something. If you talk to people who early days in any of the foreign companies that set up in India and became successful, you will hear the same narrative. Like, we couldn't get anything done without checking with HQ, will be the story. So both these approaches have their own trade-offs. There is no uh, one-size-fits-all or one is good. But I think this is the first key choice when you're going international. You have to decide your architecture and say, hey, are we fully forking or are we going to fork and converge, fork and converge? Because there are dramatically different implications for both
1: absolutely and so thank you for actually crystallizing it uh, this way and i've not seen it work in the past companies that i've been and i've worked in global companies the local companies the way they f- sorry the local units the way they feel about the product and the lack of customization not being able to be at par with local competitors is not something that uh, you know is easy to deal with and ultimately you ha- you are held to ransom uh, by a core product that is sitting somewhere in a global company in a global headquarter where where nobody really cares about local nuances because there are much bigger things to solve so it's a very tricky question and I don't know which companies have actually gotten it but just one last question on this one uh, particular piece now that with Gojek and of course a lot more I'm assuming acquisitions will happen a lot more integrations will also happen in terms of the architecture how do you see the architecture also being able to keep up with the uh, demands of not only being scalable but also being able to keep up with these strong kind of integrations that are coming up in order to keep you as that one super app that is also driving hyper growth in Southeast Asia. Wanted to understand, again, the nuances as well as some of the considerations that you have in mind as you continue to build.
2: To be honest, the answer to this question is still not apparent. I think one of the big factors is COVID itself. It's important for me to flag that since the onset of COVID, everyone's business volumes have dropped. And the, the single biggest driver for these kind of architectural issues is the ability for the system to handle scale. If it's working fine, then, you know, the architecture is correct. The architecture is wrong if it isn't working fine. And because of COVID, I think with very rare exceptions, all businesses volumes are not in that mode where you okay, the systems are going to go down every other week because business is booming. So honestly, it's very hard for me to say. Because COVID has been around now for more than a year. And that definitely impacts the evolution of the architecture. So, moving forward, it's very hard to predict what direction it's going to go in.
1: That's very honest. And I agree with you. I think this year has been an absolute watershed, but who knows what's to come. But uh, by for everyone in the audience a quick room reset we have opened up hand raising so if you want to come up and ask your question this is your chance all you need to do is click at the bottom of your screen where you see a hand icon and just click on it this will give me a, send me a notification thereby I know that you want to come up on stage when you do come up on stage the only request is to definitely say a line or two about yourself but keep it short because we'll have many more questions also I'll be taking I'll be pulling you up to the stage but the question will be asked in PTR order which means that whoever came in first will ask their question first and followed by the person who came in second and so on. Also, if you are feeling shy, there is absolutely nothing to feel shy I know there are a lot of party hats here If this is absolutely cool to ask your question, even if you don't want to ask it in English, that's also completely fine. Please come, go ahead and just raise your hands. And I see so many hands already raised up, so I'm bringing people up now. Welcome Sarthak. Welcome, uh, Akshay, Mukesh, Viknesh, Anurag. Hi, Sarthak. Welcome. Please go ahead with part. your question. But first, tell us one line about yourself, please.
3: Sure. I'm an engineering student in my final year here, here in Mumbai. I'm computer science. My question was, Sidhu, so you talked about self-learning is the most important thing. That's where the highest caliber talent comes from. So what would be some points of advice you have for someone who's just uh, starting out in the journey in computer science and tech and how to go about self-learning things at the start of their career? And my second question is about product management. For people interested in product management for the love of the game, as you said, is it better to go through the dev route, software engineering for a few years, be a part of teams or go through the business analyst route and then do the MBA
2: and then the PM? Sure. Look, I'm going to go a little off the beaten path with this one, right? Something that it took me a very long time to realize is the level of investment I can make into self-learning and the freedom to choose the direction of self-learning is fundamentally a function of budget. So I think the first and foremost question that everyone needs to get a grip on or get a handle on is to say, what is my resourcing? How much money do I have and how much risk can I take? Because self-learning is risky as well. The second is to gain clarity on what the objective of the self-learning is. Self-learning for its own sake falls into the activity trap. You're trying to be a self-learner rather than trying to do something. And as a consequence, you are learning in the process. You're teaching yourself skills in the process to achieve that objective. So the second point I would make is try to articulate a clear outcome objective that isn't skill oriented. I'm going to make X happen. And let that be the North Star to guide you in terms of what you study or what you learn. And in terms of PM, if you want to be a PM, start a company. Most likely, the first two or three companies you do are going to fail anyway, right? Fastest way to learn, start a company. All of this is budget-driven. budget, con- budget driven. So, for example, if you have uh, financial considerations, you have an EMI, a punitive EMI, or you have family members who are dependent on you, then this is not a path to consider. Like starting up, you probably want to go down the route of, as you said, uh, business analyst or it doesn't matter you can do engineer you can do business analyst any of those are fine but if you have the security the financial security uh, where you can go without really earning much money for a few years start a few companies that's the best way thank you thank you for this
3: insights
1: thank you Sartha for asking the question hi Akshay. welcome to the stage you're next Hey, Akshay, maybe you'd like to unmute yourself.
4: Hello, uh, Monica. can you hear me?
1: Yes, now we can hear you.
4: Okay, sorry about that. Hi, Sidhu, thank you for doing this. So my question is specifically around uh, architecture, and you briefly touched upon it on the the context of global expansion. But my question is more general, right? How do you take a decision or, or how do you make these architectural decisions in a team that is growing fast? Do you like uh, appoint a specific person, like a architect, as a role that you know many companies have? Are they responsible? And then, if they are the ones who are responsible, then do we like proactively go ahead and hire such people, or do you think that engineers who are at the same level, let's say we have five engineers at uh, L3 level, and those five engineers can collaboratively make these decisions? So, so that was that was my question.
2: Sure, it is whatever works. If you're at a small scale in terms of headcount because small scale and headcount doesn't mean small business, right? If you're at a small scale and headcount, then most usually what happens is ownership of architecture tends to be joint and that tends to happen organically. You don't need to impose a structure on it, right? As things grow and as you have more teams and you have more products and product verticals, maintaining architectural consistency across all of them does become a specialized job. But just like with other leadership roles in the industry, the role and the title of the architect has been completely destroyed in our part of the world by people who are basically incompetent to code and so slide into some kind of less accountable managerial role. So this kind of corruption of, of a title and a role which allows incompetent people to squat, architects, architect, the architect title and role is definitely one of them. So if you do feel that you're at a scale where you need a specialist owner of all of, of architecture, what you want to do is to make sure that those people remain hands-on, right? You do not want somebody who's going to hand wave and draw boxes on a board and then force everyone else to comply. The second thing is uh, you when you're hiring for that kind of a role, I should flag to you that you will need substantial anti-fraud measures because all the fraudsters in the industry, in dev, want to land into that role because you can go sit as an architect in a big enterprise and then no one will ask you any tough questions. So those would be the two points I would have. If your team is small, it'll be organic. Don't worry about it. Just make sure that you're tracking the metrics on the code base correctly that are proxies for architectural integrity. Uh, once you're at a certain scale where coordination is needed, uh, you can create a specialist role for that. But you should promote, ideally promote people uh, from within into that role. And if you are hiring externally, run massive anti-fraud measures on it. Thank you. Thank you for that.
1: Thanks, Akshay, for the question. Hi, Mukesh, welcome. You are next.
0: Yeah. Hi, Monica. My question for the Siddhu is like what? Basically, I am Mukesh. I am working as an engineering manager in one of the fintech, and I just want to you know reach to the you know, go towards the leadership position more in that work. So, what do you see? Uh, in a particular leader when you want to hire. So in, in just some terms of, I want to know your views on that.
2: Sure. In, in, in the tech side of the business, I would not hire anybody into leadership who does not have a clear execution thesis. And that execution thesis needs to span all functions. That would be the first and foremost. You are here to run. The, the way product companies work is you build a machine to build the product, Right which is another way of saying you build a product that builds a product. Only at a very small scale scale, do you build a product. At a very large scale, you build a product that is your company and that company then builds the actual product. And uh, what that means is you really need to have a thorough, rigorous thought process around how do you organize such a system, what are the different trade-offs, and uh, how do you measure its impact. The second thing that is non-negotiable for me in leadership is proof of study and proof-of-work. Both are essential. I do not like to hire people who don't study, and I do not like to hire people who don't have a portfolio. So that would be in the three points in a nutshell. Okay, thank you. Thank you,
1: thank you Mukesh. Uh,
2: also, this just to reiterate the same points I've made before, wanting to be in leadership is wanting to be somebody, not wanting to do something. So the same risks apply. So be very careful with that objective.
1: Uh, thank you. Next, welcome.
3: Hi, Monica. Thank you for having me. Uh, hi, Sidhu. Thank you for doing this. I'm an HR professional uh, working in a bank. And I mench- I for the last couple of years, we are w- closely tracking this space as we w- want to uh, do some work in the product management bit. We are looking at skill sets, hiring for the product piece in one of our business verticals. There is a constant challenge. And I think you also mentioned that there is a severe uh, lack of skill sets, which we also get to know from uh, our leadership team. My question to you is, I have a couple of questions. One is, what are the three, four key skills which are required for product managers in today's in today's startup times? And the second question is, how do you bridge that
2: gap? Thank Honestly, you. Honestly, there is no one-size-fits-all for the first. It depends on the business, B2C, B2B, etc. So I cannot easily generalize. But... Um, A product manager without a very strong operations execution background, what probably would get labeled as project management, though it's a lot more, is not somebody I would hire. Even if they're not doing the project management themselves, if they don't understand what it is to run large systems from a project management milestone timeline perspective, is hiring someone to run the factory who doesn't know how factories work if you're in a manufacturing industry. Makes no sense to me. Happens all the time. The second thing I would say is extremely strong critical analysis capabilities and with a a bent towards numerical and data. And third is a rebellious streak. Uh, All good product managers are rebels. The good ones in large companies mask it, but all good product managers are fundamentally rebels. So I would look for that rebellious streak. But that would be the three super generalized areas. In terms of closing the gap, Look, the talent shortage is so big and so real that there is no choice today but to run massive training. And you cannot outsource that training because if it could be outsourced, we wouldn't have the shortage. So this is the bitter truth. Everyone needs to have in-house, extremely strong training capabilities or your org is just going to collapse under its own weight in no time. And um, if you remember, one of the answers I gave earlier on was heavily oriented on mentoring, one of my key focus areas from a team building perspective, is for exactly this reason. It is impossible to hire experienced talent in anything like the quantity you need. Even if you need one, you won't get that one, which means that you're teaching, which means you need super strong in-house teaching capabilities. Thank you, thank you, that was helpful. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Vignesh. Uh, Hi, Anurag, welcome. Please ask your question.
0: Hi Monica, uh, uh, Anurag here. Um, just a quick uh, background about myself. I previously co founded uh, Ziffy, which was one of India's largest carpooling startups. We exited in 2020 to one of the largest car- automobile manufacturers in Europe. Uh, currently, I'm heading the products with a software funded mobility startup here in Paris. I agree with a lot of points that you have mentioned, Sidhu, as an experienced product manager myself. This is a problem that we see across the industry. But another problem that we have been seeing, especially in the Indian startup ecosystem, is founders typically think that hiring a product manager is going to solve their product problems. W- what do you have to say about that?
2: Look, again, controversial YMMV caveat emptor, take this with a grain of salt, right? Most startups tend to be heavily biased towards the origin stories of their founders. What I mean by this is, if you look at Apple, you can see the design bias right there. Airbnb design bias, Google engineering bias, right? Microsoft engineering bias, then sales bias. The
4: partnership
2: has been around for a while. The company biases in that direction and becomes weak in others. Now... If you look at our part of the world, most founding teams are non-technical and do not have prior product experience or do not have significant prior product experience. And when that happens, there is this tendency to try to wave a magic wand for whatever the gaps are. It's, hey, my engineering totally sucks. My system is melting down. Wave a magic wand, hire a CTO, all the problems will go away. I will continue working as I was before. The CTO will come in, nothing will change for me, but my engineering problems will disappear. Or the example you gave, right? Like my product isn't moving or whatever. There are XYZ product issues. I will continue with business as usual. I'll hire a product manager. That person is going to solve that problem. And unfortunately, the the reason I'm framing it in this manner is to just elicit the, the cognitive bias or the willful denial of reality there. That as a founder, you're not going to be able to continue with business as usual. When you hire this person in, you're going to have to change how you approach things to create space and to hand over control to that person. And the moment you hand over control to that person, especially over something as as central and pivotal responsibility as product management, that is going to touch and change everything in the company from how finance works to how HR works to how eng works to how everything works. And if you aren't going to drive that change, then you're in for a mess. And you do need to be aware that when you bring in a senior leader to own a particular vertical, you are now also taking on the responsibility of aligning all the other verticals around that person to make sure that person can make the changes they need to make. Here yeah, anurag
1: were you trying to say
5: something?
0: Yes, 12 years experience and I've still not learned to unmute myself while speaking. So sorry for that. Sidhu. thank you so much. It was very comprehensive and definitely some really important points there. Thank you.
2: Thanks Anurag.
5: Hey
1: Gokul, you're next. Please ask your question. Hey Gokul, are you still there?
5: Hey, uh, yes, I am. Sorry, I uh, just got got my results. I'm negative. Thank you. All right. Yes. Hey, congrats, man. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm happy for negative on it. <laughs> Thank you so much. All right. Uh, my question is actually uh, I have uh, two questions actually. Uh, before that, I was uh, myself Gokul. I was running my startup called Go to the Change. We are a micro mobility startup in Bangalore. Uh, due to COVID situation, I shut down the operation and started, joined as a product manager with a Georgia based SaaS company my question is like when compared to a SaaS product manager and a B2C product manager the skill set the what the implementation is extremely looks very different here so how do you actually you know bridge those gaps by being a B2C guy how do you adapt yourself to a B2B product manager
2: it's very difficult to give specific advice to your situation because as I mentioned product management is this negative space role you have to look at the shape of the gaps left by everybody in the company and fill it but the Three general pillars of product management are power, decision-making capability, and execution capability, right? So irrespective of what the negative space is, you have to make sure that you're constantly accruing power by power. The ability to drive through decisions and align people that need that needs to be done. If you're an employee, this typically means the power comes from having the attention of a senior management or the founders. And if you're a founder yourself, then power comes usually from having very strong budgets, partnerships, and brand. But power is very crucial. Uh, Always increase the amount of power and leverage that you have. And the second thing would be quality of decision making. And uh, third would be the quality of execution. You need to have fairly rigorous frameworks around all three areas. How do you increase your power sustainably? How do you improve the quality of your decision making sustainably? And how do you improve the quality of product execution? I want to be clear here. Most most times when I say this, PMs assume that I'm talking about their workflow. I'm not talking about your own execution. I'm talking about what execution for product should look like. What are the metrics? How do we optimize? So these are the three buckets at a high level. But I'm sorry, more specific than that will be tough.
5: But- Thanks, Sudhu. Sudhu, if you don't mind, uh, one more question. How do you handle a failure of a startup and then you move to one next company and work again? How do you bounce back? How does journey work?
2: Budgets. You the, the only reason you're taking a job is because you need the stability and part of stability comes from money, which means that there is a certain threshold of stability and money after which you can venture out again. So be very clear what that threshold is. Once you hit that threshold, go start up again. Remember that statistically speaking, Most startups fail and statistically speaking, most of your startups will fail and you need to build the system in such a way, assuming that you're going to have four, five, six failures before you hit a success. And uh, the simplest way to refuel in between each attempt is to go get a job and build up a savings. So just have a savings target, be patient. It took me 10 years. It does take that long, right? Because it, it takes several failures before the statistics start playing in your favor. And I think the most difficult but important perspective to add is it is statistically possible to spend 30 or 40 years attempting to start up and still not succeed. So you definitely should hedge your financial situation so that you don't wind up completely broke. That's the only real risk to watch out for, that you don't want to be in the second half of your career and personally uh, broke. That risk watch out for.
5: But otherwise,
2: startup, get a job, startup, get a job, startup, get a job. Works perfectly. Actually, to be honest, I would even advocate for the more than getting a job, startup, do consulting.
5: Okay, I'll take that. Because I'm in the right now, like, uh, my first startup is actually failed due to the COVID. So we shut down the operations. So now I joined with a Georgia-based company. Uh, yeah i feel your really pain fun. man
2: and uh good yeah. good on you making these tough decisions and i'm sorry to hear that this has been a tough time for everybody and yeah. I, my heart really went out to all the entrepreneurs who had just launched and then got hit by this
5: yeah sure thanks Sudhu. it was really helping thanks monica
1: thank you Gokul, and congratulations for testing negative yeah. which is covid negative yeah. but always positive yeah.
5: thank, thank you God. for
1: asking your question Hi, Lohit. Welcome to the stage. Sorry, you've been waiting for some time, but uh, please go ahead and ask your question.
4: Thanks, Monika. Hi, Sidhu. Hi, I'm, I'm Lohit and I work as an engineering manager in Pramata Solutions. It's one of the product company. Sidhu, the question that I have is a little technical and also a little of an args- arg thing. So basically, when product companies grow, right, so they do have teams. And so this fact of reusability kicks in. And then what happens is, so this is something called maybe you can name it like a platform. So it's so at certain point of time, like you might have to be flexible and don't worry about like try to commonize and try to reuse things because it does add a uh, the extra extra weight of collaboration and things like that. So maybe each individual team can be independent and even if they're writing same module or something like that, reuse it again. Don't reuse it again from the other team. It's okay, but it will give you a, a kind of like good uh, good speed, right? So when you do this, over a period of time, you have to switch to other side where like you have to commonize, start building platforms where it can be leveraged across the hall. So what is the symptoms or uh, things to look out when to switch this and when to do this? Uh, I know both ends are like not good. Yeah, so just to figure out the...
2: So I'm I'm not sure I'll be able to answer this meaningfully, but I'll try. There are a couple of things here that I think that are very important. One is, I believe there's a severe mental model issue when approaching this problem, which is we tend to think of uh, software in terms of features or modules. Features and modules are units of sales. I sell a feature or a module to a customer. But if I'm developing the software in features or modules, I'm shooting myself in the foot. Features and modules give me no useful information from an execution standpoint. So... First thing I would flag over there is features and modules are for the sales and marketing teams to talk about from an execution standpoint. If you're building a feature or building a module, you will not be able to make good decisions because that is the wrong mental model. What you want to be looking at is asking yourself, what is the number that I'm moving, right? You build teams around numbers to move. You don't build teams around features or modules. So you build a team and say, here's your number, move this number, right? Not a number. Typically, you want a a paired metric, quality and quantity. But the idea is you build teams around metrics. You don't build teams around features and modules. Make sure that is only with sales and marketing. That's for the customer. Of course, there needs to be a mapping from metrics to features and modules so that it's not like vaporware. But having said that, please don't let features and modules come into the execution side. The second thing is, in the absence of any major pressure, everyone goes into efficiency focus. And this can be dangerous because most people do not measure efficiency while also measuring productivity or throughput. And most improvements to efficiency come at the cost of throughput. So it's very important to instrument your overall execution and you're saying, hey, I want to reuse. You have to be very clear in quantifying what are the benefits of that reuse and what are the costs. If you remember, there was an earlier question around internationalization that Monica had, which is probably one of the big reuse versus rebuild questions. And uh, there are very severe trade-offs to reuse. So I have seen this over and over again, where people start obsessing over efficiency at an intuitive level. And in the process of pursuing that efficiency, either the efficiency of the engineer or the efficiency of uh, reuse of the code or the efficiency of the code itself, they end up completely uh, wiping out the throughput of delivery, which means the quantity of, of output that the team can produce. So you do want to have efficiency metrics saying this much is getting reused, but you do want to have throughput metrics as well saying what is the end-to-end cycle time from idea to production. So if you're getting increasing efficiency, but the time from idea to production is going up 5x, is it really worth it? Probably not. So that's, that would be my, my perspective in a nutshell. Okay. Uh, thanks, Sidhu.
1: Thank you, Lohit. Arjun, hi, welcome. Please ask your question.
4: Hi, Monica. Thanks.
0: Hey, Sudhu. I, I think I've met you a few times through RailsConf and the conferences through, from a long time ago your know, C42 days. But yeah, it's good to see you over here. Great to connect uh, again, man. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. My question today is really around the, a little bit around the internationalization. When you have multinational teams, how do you, what is your opinion about maintaining cross-functional teams and cross-national teams, as well as how do you facilitate uh, a culture of strong communication?
2: No easy answers there. uh, Made worse by COVID. I believe in hiring (laughs) to the same standard and spending a large chunk of the budget on travel. The soft rule that we had at Gojek was 10% of any office is actually going to be in another office at any point in time. And we're going to continuously ramp up the number of people who are on secondment to another office. In fact, for example, now it's reached a level where HR recruiting also, uh, like my current people partner in Gojek is actually from Indonesia and is based in Bangalore right now. So just massive amounts of co-location and it costs a lot of money and is worth it. Gotcha. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Arjun. Hi, Emma, welcome to the stage. And I know you have a party hat on. So wonderful Hi, to see Monica. you and ask your question. Please go ahead.
6: Thanks for the welcome. Hi, Monica. Hi, CD. Um Thanks so much Hi, for Emma. this room. I'm actually from the UK. I work in a product team as a business analyst, but I think that the insights here can be generalized to different regions. So it's been so interesting hearing and your, your feedback. I have two questions. My first one is about um, what we touched upon earlier around skill shortages. Where, what exactly do we mean by that? Which area? Because product manager is somebody who sits across a UX business technology. Is it the technical side where there's a skill shortage or is it the business side? Or is it the fact that we're looking for somebody who can cross across all those functions, as you mentioned, Sidu? My second question, and perhaps more interesting one, which I'm really keen to hear more about, is actually, based on your experience from Gojek, um, and, and obviously it's from kind of Indonesia, you're based in india but actually let's talk about the southeast asian market how do you build for architecture or factor in design in a market in southeast asia which is highly fragmented and there's different levels of technological maturity so how is that factored in and how do you look to evolve that strategically
2: i think to your first question the shortage is endemic across all areas right there there is absolutely no area Um, of specialization. And it's not just product management. You can pick any function where the shortage isn't extremely severe. Just I've started hearing grapevine stories about how the million-dollar pay package has been crossed in India already for data science, for people with relevant experience. That's how bad the shortage is. So it isn't any one particular vertical. It's just people who can move numbers are in extremely short supply. There just aren't enough of that. The people who can push paper, plenty, but people who can move numbers, very few. In, in terms of the architecture, I'm not sure I entirely understood the question. So could you possibly rephrase?
6: Sure, absolutely. It's more about the, the Southeast Asia market where, um, say, particular companies like Gojek, which you know is from Indonesia originally, but has a kind of wider Southeast Asia and Asia presence. How do you, in a technology company, build for architecture, with a view of expanding into other parts of Southeast Asia, where you may need to integrate with other partners, etc., you're at different levels of technological maturity. So I work in fintech and it may be different
2: uh, in
3: other industries. No, no, I understand. Yeah. I
2: understand. No, yeah. I, I, I understood your point. I think one thing that uh, we've seen is on the fintech side, especially, this is, it's less so on, in other verticals, but fintech, especially when you're dealing with banking or with POS, et cetera, you have every customer that you sign on brings on like this lump of integration work. And uh, honestly, I've not seen a good standardized solution to it. One side has been that you build an army of, of, of folks whose primarily, primary ability is to read and integrate APIs. You're talking about uh, a volumes job, uh, highly repetitive and low on skill. But this creates a lot of issues in terms of morale uh, and engagement and uh, career mobility for those people. And that's one set of trade-offs. The other approach that I've seen is to go to uh, large I- IT-, IT services providers who can give you this kind of skill set in volume. But that comes with other risks in terms of your ability to manage timelines, et cetera, et cetera. Because if you're successful fintech, then you probably do dozens of these integrations every year, if not every month. And you really can't, you don't start making money until the integrations are in place. And if you're outsourcing that, then you're Outsourcing like this critical step in your sales cycle to a third party. Unfortunately, I don't have a good solution that uh, addresses both of these. It's either way you have your problems.
6: I see. Thanks for that. It's really interesting. To follow on, would you say that there will be challenges or barriers to initially scaling that one needs to get past before being able to really um, roll out a solution more widely across those markets? Then, Because it almost sounds one to one integration with that particular team working with very different architectures, working with very different levels of technological maturity rather than rolling out something in mass to a standard solution across different technology partners.
2: That is correct. I think the uh, only exception would be when the person or the entity that's doing the rolling out has extremely deep pockets. If you're a major international bank and you're trying to do this, that's a different ballgame. But for pretty much everybody else, unless you're running on like a multi-hundred million dollar budget, you really do want to be uh, clear about where you have your traction and crack that segment fully before you expand because the expansion is extremely intensive uh, both in money time and effort
6: that's really interesting because i think it actually is um brings up another point about when people talk about who will be the emerging kind of winners across whether it's tech companies banks or other consumer companies entering finance and perhaps you may see this other verticals other industry as well but that's scale and that the kind of balance sheets and maybe something that certain like large size companies can leverage. I'm going to really quickly try and finish off because I'm aware that people have questions. But back to your point about skills shortages across each of those areas, both technical and non, people being able to move numbers. Is that the result of us becoming generalists today, do you think? People are good at maybe spanning different things, but not being getting deep enough into each of them to be able to effectively really break through and move numbers
2: it's a function of the growth of the markets the India Southeast Asia uh, region has been growing exponentially for years now and the compounding effect is really starting to kick in 2019 I I have some numbers for there were 450 series investments in the region which means that and of those about 80 were in the 25 to 50 million dollar range which means that you're looking at 450 VP level positions being created at a minimum for each area of specialization, product, eng, whatever, probably at least two to three X that. And then outside of leadership, you're probably looking at four to five open positions per investment conservatively. So that means in 2019 alone, there were about 5,000 new open positions created of which 500 were leadership positions. The tech market in India uh, and Southeast Asia, like the the not the services, but the, the product side of it, is probably graduating 5 to 10 leadership people every year. And when I say graduating, these people have got experience building and solving and have decided to leave their high-paying, extremely leveraged job to join a startup. So the demand-supply gap is just, hey, our talent is growing linearly, the market is growing super linearly. In fact, we're probably like five years away from most other countries immigrating into the region for work because that's how lucrative it is.
6: I see. That's, that's really interesting to think about. Thanks so much, Siddhi. I've learned a lot from this conversation. Thanks again. You're
2: thank welcome. Thank you,
1: Emma. Last question to you, Utkarsh. Please go uh, ahead. Ha-
0: thank you. Hello, everyone. So I'm Utkarsh. I graduated from IMF Dawad this month only. So my question is, how to how do we decide that we have to go for a full time hiring or just outsource the extra work to freelancers? I mean, a one time thing versus a full time thing. How do you decide?
2: Outsource unless you're outsourcing to somebody more competent than you. The only reason you're doing it is to save money, right? So you can outsource for two reasons. You can outsource for capability. You can outsource for capability arbitrage or cost arbitrage. Never both, right? So you have to be very clear what your budgets are. If, you're, if you have the budgets, build the team in-house. That's always the preferred choice. If you don't have the money, outsource. If you can't build the team in-house, then outsource for capability because building a team in-house is probably harder than building the product itself. Today, there is bigger risk in attempting to build a product team than there is in trying to build the product. So these are the three sort of risks that you need to trade off. If you try to build the team in-house, major risk, you may fail. Most people do. And you may never get around to your product. If you outsource for cost, most likely they will screw up your product. If you outsource for capability, most likely you'll run out of budget. Now, you've got to dance a delicate balance between these three different pegs. Just a follow up on that. I'm really sorry. So
0: before outsourcing the work, should I try it out myself for some time, see if I could get a hang of it or uh, should I outsource it without even diving it,
2: without knowing what it is? Have you studied the textbooks on the subject? What do you mean? When you build a product, there are textbooks for all of these areas. There are like specific textbooks for product management, specific textbooks for ENG, specific textbooks for design. You yeah. will not be able to answer the question of trying it in-house versus going out until you studied those textbooks. Okay, okay. Do you have prior background in any one of these verticals? I don't have, but I found it interesting, but
0: it will take a lot of time from my friend, so just trying just on the decision of
2: outsourcing or not so now most likely look don't mind me saying this but I have seen a lot of people spend two years and a ton of money instead of reading a book don't be one of those people (laughs) okay thank you
1: (laughs) that is the best advice ever Sidhu. Absolutely, the best advice. Thank you so much for that. And thank you, Utkash, for your question. I did not expect that this conversation would actually go this long. But uh, the quality of questions, as well as, of course, the responses, and more importantly, everything that you've said, Sidhu, has absolutely hit home. But I'm not going to let you go without answering a quick rapid fire of mine. And I'm uh, promising to keep this a little bit more fun so that we can get over this amazing conversation and end it with uh, some personal glimpses of who you are as a person as well but before we do that just the last little room reset for everyone who's still uh, listening very intently to this conversation we are the asian digital supermovers and we talk about everything related to the asian digital economy so if you haven't uh, followed us please uh, give us a quick follow we will be coming up with more interesting content specifically related to asia and if you haven't heard sidhu say this then i will say this again it really is the place that is buzzing which is teaching everyone what uh asia is not only capable of doing but where the exponential growth is coming from tomorrow we have a room at 10 a.m in the morning where we actually talk about something which is actually rallying right now which is bitcoin but we actually go behind the scenes and talk to you about the very basics we are not offering financial advice just giving you the lowdown so that you understand it before you make your own financial decisions sidhu i'm just going to ask you quick rapid fire questions now and i'll expect quick responses but let's start now so First question, technical PM, growth PM, data PM, or just PM? Just PM. <laughs> okay. I like working from home or hate it?
2: Depends on the home. If I have an office, then prefer working from home. But from a business point of view, prefer co location. I, ha- I have these internal paradoxes. What can I say?
1: Lovely. Build in public, yay ye- ye or nay?
2: Building public is just an illusion. You can't actually build in public because you will give away too much information and your business lives and dies on information asymmetry. So what we used to call blogging 10 years ago is today called building in public.
1: I I don't know what to say. I'm just like relishing this opportunity to write and say a few things, but I'm obviously going to keep quiet. Your truth is amazing. What have you not tried from these among these? Intermittent fasting, zero inbox or digital detox?
2: Digital, Digital detox. detox.
1: Okay and uh, what is your mantra? That uh, you I've just...
2: been a one meal a day guy since childhood so that was not something that I tried. I, I naturally okay. tend to be bad at eating.
1: Okay got it and what is your mantra to keep you sane in cross-functional collaborations?
2: Do the work. You can't drive cross-functional collaboration until you've done the cross-functional work. You, you can't help drive engineering until you spend some time doing engineering you can't drive product management until you've done some product management just do some of the work go sit with someone who's doing the work and learn a little of the work
1: android or ios android does india need a super app
2: nobody knows what a super app is
1: I thought this was coming. <laughs> uh,
2: Super App is a, is a marketing and branding strategy. It isn't a product strategy.
1: I 100% agree with you. What was your last and most used emoji?
2: Uh, smiley.
1: Excellent. And I think you've already answered this question, but I'm still going to ask for especially the people who are young and are uh, shaping their careers. What do you use uh, to learn blogs, books, listen to podcasts, audio, video?
2: I I struggle with audio and video because I find it too slow. Reading is the only thing that does it for me. And I use a combination of things which entertain me versus things which people I respect recommend and try to maintain a blend of both. But it depends on my mood and morale. So if my morale is low, I'll read fun stuff. If my morale is high, I'll read educational stuff.
1: What is the book that you're reading right now?
2: Juggling between one fiction and one non fiction. I'm reading uh, the non fiction I'm studying right now as I'm trying to get a grasp on the SAP story and the SAP market, the ERP market, if you will. That's my non fiction. And the fiction book I'm reading is Ra by Quantum.
1: Excellent. And last uh, question to you. And I have forgotten my train of thought again, which is quite extraordinary. But I've forgotten my last question.
2: No, no, no worries. No worries.
1: (laughs) Okay, this hasn't happened before. But yes, I've absolutely forgotten my last question. But maybe this also explains the fact that I'm still processing all that you said. And uh, honestly, this hasn't happened before. So I don't know. No worries.
2: It (laughs) It happens to me all the time. In fact, I'm very expert at losing my train of thought and then saying something as totally random. Some of you may have noticed in today's session.
1: But I thought that was a PM trade. So I let it go. In fact, I quite enjoyed it.
2: Cool. As long as it came through. Okay, I'm good.
1: Absolutely. Thank you Sidhu. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show and it's been and more importantly learning so much from you and hearing you truthfully speak about facets of product management engineering and of course working in startups and large enterprises now by any standard which mostly people tend to shy away from and uh, also speaking about hiring and retention and most importantly learning. Covid has really hit us as a really bad time but at the same time we are also wasting wasting far too much time if there's anything the young people here who are listening in can take away from this conversation it's about skilling and about making sure that they are able to harness their talent in the right ways i hope that this podcast is going to come up uh, online soon at which point in time we'll be posting it to all the socials but before i let Sidhu go Sidhu any closing thoughts or any anything that you would like to tell us before you leave
2: Thanks so much, Monica. It's been a great session and you've been a great host. And thanks everyone in the room for taking so much time. We've been here for one hour, fifty minutes. Really appreciate it. So I just want to take a moment to thank everybody. Thanks so much for being here and thanks for listening to me.
1: Thank you Sidhu and thank you to the wonderful audience see I forgot this as well thank you to everyone you have stayed in and been listening intently and since I turned hand raising off I am actually getting a little bit of hate which I do not quite dislike right now because it means that you will keep coming back and I will try to get Sidhu on again where we will probably deep dive into the engineering side and also about developing culture because we have not been able to touch on those aspects depending on if Sidhu is available we will definitely try to get him back. Thank you everyone for joining.
2: Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Monica. Thanks, Patithi. Thank
1: you. And have a great evening, everyone. Take care. Bye. Stay
5: safe.
2: Bye-bye.